Thank you so much, Pastor Jeff. Good afternoon. Right on the dot at 12 o'clock. Good afternoon, everyone. So good to see all of you here. Sorry I've been away preaching in Australia. But good to be back here as with brothers and sisters in Christ. For those who are new with us, we're going through a series of messages on Psalms, the Psalms, 150 Psalms. We're now at Book 3. And the Psalms have one main theme, right? This one particularly, it's crying out to God and a nation of God crying out to God. We call it the laments. So we continue to pray that you come and not just yourself, but invite your family and friends to come and join us. So restore us, O God, is the message of this psalm. And it repeats it three times. We'll say more about it. When you think about it, let me ask, uh, begin our time by asking, have you ever been in trouble? That's like a no-brainer. Everybody sitting here has been in trouble. Have you ever been in crisis? Crisis slightly bigger than trouble. Do you, have you ever needed help? And ask yourself, uh, how desperately do you need that help? Do you need it now? Do you need it tomorrow? Do you need it? Can it be postponed, that help? And so on a small scale, right, you've got burst pipes at home. You know what to do when there's a burst pipe at home, your plumbing goes. Do you know what to do when your toilet is stuck? Would you know what to do if you were driving and you blew a tyre and had to change the tyre? Would you know what to do if the lift jams? So many, many years ago, I was renting a flat when I first came to Singapore and the lift jammed. It was totally packed at that time. The lights went off, the fan went off, and I don't know, there were six, eight people in there and you pray you don't get a panic attack. You pray that nobody lets go of some guests. Right? And uh, do you know what to do if your computer breaks? Don't you know what to do if somebody hacks into your computer? Then it gets bigger. What help do you need if you found out somewhere along the line that you are an unwanted child? What do you do if you are a cheated spouse? What do you do if you come from a broken home, a dysfunctional home? What do you do if you are a parent who has looked after your kids so well, but in your old age they have forgotten you, they have abandoned you, and what do you do? There are two ways to ask for help, two ways to be safe. The first way of a call is the spontaneous help of a stranger. And what's the spontaneous help of a stranger? So I do not know what your experience is when you get on the train here called the MRT for those who are tuning in from overseas, the MRT, the Mass Rapid Transport uh, Transit System. So I got into this train and a woman waved frantically to me, right? So I was thinking, maybe church member? Then she just signaled to me, chair for you. <laughs> seat for you, seat for you. Because why? I love my grey hair. I really love my grey hair. Because that seat is reserved for the pregnant and the more elderly, and the grey hair signals that. And so we call that the spontaneous help of a stranger. She doesn't know me, I don't know her, there's nothing between us, and all of a sudden she signals there's a seat for you, right? And other times, you might call for professional help, the paid help of a professional so when might you do this? When might you need this? You might call the police if you are the victim of a crime. You might call your emergency services, and here in Singapore it's called the SCDF, if you are the casualty of an accident. You might call the doctor if you are sick. You might, if you are going through a period of mental unwellness, you might have to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So there are two main types of help. Here is the psalmist, and he's calling out for help. So let's listen to him. But firstly, an outline, a possible outline of this portion, of this psalm. The first three verses is a cry for help. From verse 4 to verse 7, he's facing a crisis. And what kind of crisis you face? All sorts of 
crisis, a medical crisis, a financial crisis, but his is a crisis of faith. His belief in God is tested to the limit. And then a call to remember. He looks back and reviews his story, his life story, his faith in God in the past so that he can understand what God is doing in the present. And then it finally ends, a cry to return. What would that mean? Stay with us and find out. And so let's read the first few verses. And I suggest to you there's not just two ways to be saved, but there's a third way. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir your might, stir your power, and come to save us. So listen to his prayer, listen to his plea. He says, give ear or hear. Hear, don't be deaf to our prayers. Shine, do not leave us in darkness. And you're going to read in this psalm, the shining is turn your face to us, turn your face to us. Don't turn your face away from us. Awaken, don't abandon us. Come near, don't stay at a distance. Don't leave us. Save, don't leave us. Punish. The psalmist's call for help is quite different. It's not a call for a stranger, right, who spontaneously helps us, like the lady in the MRT train. It's neither the call for a paid rescue of a professional. So, if you are the victim of a crime, right, and you call the police, if you are casualty or accident, and you call the ambulance or the emergency services, if you are a patient and you need a doctor, when these professionals arrive, none of us will ever say to them, shine your face on me. <laughs> because it's totally out of context. Shine on me. The police officer might refer you to another service. Is this guy of right mind? Shine on me, I'm just a police officer. The third way to be saved is not the spontaneous response of a stranger, the paid, remunerated response of a professional, but this is the response of a God who promised to love his people. And that's vitally important, and that's signaled three times in the verse that keeps repeating. And the verse that keeps repeating is verse 3, Restore us, O God, let your face shine on us. Imagine saying that to the ambulance driver, let your face shine on us, that we might be safe. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Thirdly, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. In cursory reading, light-hearted reading, non-attentive reading, they sound identical. Are they identical? They are not. There's something different each time it is repeated. So look at verse 7, contrasted with verse 3. First one is, restore us, O God. Second one is, restore us, O God of hosts. In some versions, O God Almighty, he is now pleading the sovereignty of God. And God of hosts may carry with it a sense of God as military leader of Israel, sovereign over the nation, sovereign over battles, and God will say to his people, the battle belongs to me. Just trust in me. The battle doesn't belong to you. You will not win this battle. The battle belongs to me. Restore us. And now what's the difference? As you contrast verse 19 to verse 7 to verse 3. O God, O Lord, God of hosts. And Lord is the name of God. 
And so for each one, there's an expansion and escalation. As it were, the name of God is, is held up higher and higher. As he laments more and more, as he laments more and more, there is a climax of this. Let your face shine upon you. And so there are not just two ways to ask for help, two ways to be saved. The third way is the most important. You call for help because you have a God who loves you. That was the prerogative and that was the special relationship Israel had with God. Of all the many nations, God chose one nation, not because she was more numerous, not because she was more clever, not because she was more obedient. And the scriptures will say, God chose Israel because he has mercy on who he has mercy. So we must never resort to merit. And Israel must never think she's better than the other nations. And so it is out of mercy. And God made a promise to them. And so to understand any passage of the scriptures from Old to the New Testament, and especially to understand the Psalms, when they pray like this, the background is a, a relationship. When the policeman arrives, the ambulance drivers arrives, the firemen arrive, they have no relationship with you. They are just out there to discharge a job. Is that right? The doctor may start to collect data from you so they can put the dot point and establish a profile of who you are. When the psalmist calls out to God, the profile is already there. He has established relationship with them. And to truly understand the Bible better and better and how it climaxes in God's promise fulfilled in Jesus, you need to understand Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28 is an anchor passage to understand this. I just came back from preaching in Perth and I preached on Revelation. The final book, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, God gives an invitation either to be blessed you enter the new Jerusalem purchased by the blood of Jesus, you are blessed. If you choose to stay in the Babylons of this world, man-made, man-rule, man-pleasing, man-glorifying, self-made, self-rule, self-pleasing, self-glorifying, as opposed to Jerusalem, God-made, God-rule, God-glorifying to the finished work of Jesus, outside, you will not be blessed. The background to it is actually Deuteronomy 28. So are you willing to listen to this? Willing to listen? You must. And so let's go and read this. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, the name of God, will set you high above all the other nations. So God will make them stand out as the apple of His eye. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord, your God, look at that word that is there. These blessings will come and overtake you. That means blessings on your right, blessings on your left, blessings center stage, blessing at your front, blessing at the back. And how do you know this? Listen to the next passage. Blessed are you in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. So whether you are city slicker or you are country dweller, blessings for both urbanites and country folks. And in some countries, only the city folks get a blessing. The country folk are really dying as their farms dry. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, fertility. Blessed be the fruit of the ground, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock. That's in modern day language, 
My goodness, the stock market keeps going up. The property market keeps going up. We're just increasing in. Blessed shall your basket be and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. What do you call that? The covenant relationship, the love that God has with His people is one word, blessing. And it comes from another big B word, benevolence. Benevolence. The good-heartedness of God not based on the good-heartedness of His people. He just chooses them out of His mercy to be a shining light of His purposes. But in this covenant love, in this covenant relationship between the true, the living, and the loving God, there is a but, and the but is this. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful to do all His commandments, and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field, cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl, cursed shall be the fruit of your womb, infertility instead of fertility, cursed the fruit of the ground, the increase of your hands, the young of your flock, cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. It's a total opposite and reversal. And so we have to use that God loves us with an unconditional love, with some caution and some care. This is not an undiscerning God who dishes out blessing upon you regardless of how you respond to Him. That will make you undiscerning. God is not an undiscerning God. He's not a hard-up God that no matter how you behave, He's just going to bless you so in some way you just worship Him. This is a God of holiness. He calls His people to be holy as I am holy. And in calling them to this covenant relationship, it is by His grace and empowerment that they will stand out as a light if they obey His commandments. That's how the relationship started, as God started them as Israel. Then He goes on, I highly commend that you go back and read the whole of Deuteronomy and this is for your good for the rest of your days. Can you read this together with me? Yep, together. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. You see the sting that is there? Because you did not serve, and the Hebrew word there can be swapped and translated in English, because you did not worship the Lord your God. With what? Worship Him. As you come here, you're worshipping God. You come here as joyful or joyless? Gladness of heart or boredom? Because Israel did not serve God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, even though God blessed them with abundance. And so they entered, they left Egypt, and they entered a land flowing with milk and honey. Not that it was an easy land, but God made it prosper. God made it abundant. So it's without a doubt now, the stats have proven it, right? That Singapore is now the third financial centre of the world. You know what an achievement that is? You know what an achievement it is? That the big financial centres have been there for decades, for a long time, 
the New Yorks and the Londons. And Singapore out of nowhere has bolted to number three. And if I read correct, correctly, $440 billion poured into our coffers just this year, if not wrong. We are now an economy in the trillions of dollars with 5.5 million people. Have you met a happy Singaporean? A Singapore that doesn't grumble? What do you call a Singaporean who doesn't grumble? Malaysian. <laughs> oh, sorry, did I say that? Or at least anything but Singaporean. Filipino, Thai folks, everybody's chilling. We have abundance. We have everything but enjoy nothing with Thanksgiving. That was Israel. Do not normalize that behavior. When you have everything and enjoy nothing, and they gave up Yahweh, the true, the living and the loving God, to go and chase Baals, idols of this world, because they were more visible, they were more tangible, they were more reachable, they were more touchable, they were more real than the unseen Yahweh. Therefore, if you swap the true, the living and the loving God for dead and dumb idols that you make with your hands, you shall serve your enemies. You want to serve their idols? Yeah, I'll give you what you want. That is part of God's ongoing judgment. Be careful what you ask for. You want to be like the nations? I'll make you be like the nations. You'll be taken by the nations. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger and thirst, in naked and lacking everything. The nation that lacked nothing now will lack everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck. He freed them from the yoke of Pharaoh and Egypt. But in disobedience, the yoke will come upon them until he has destroyed you. Where else? You were as numerous as the stars of the heaven. You shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. You know how they became so numerous? So numerous that Pharaoh panicked by the second book? That promise was made to an aged couple, Abraham and Sarai, and an elderly couple. You never must promise an elderly, aged and barren couple that they will have many children. It's very cruel. Only God can promise that and be very kind and true. And finally, in their old age, he opened Sarah's womb and she gave birth to Isaac. And God had promised Isaac and Sarah, your descendants will be more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. They became more numerous. From four patriarchs in Genesis to the second book, they became more numerous. There are 12 tribes. And then, because you want to be like the other nations, I set you apart to be for me. You want to be like them? I will make you lose your numbers. And as the Lord took delight in doing good to you and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight and bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land. And that's a signal unknown to them that they'll be taken, overtaken, and taken out their land. And you'll be entering to take, that you're entering to take possession of it. And so what do we have here? What's more dangerous than sin? There's nothing more dangerous than sin because God is holy and He hates sin. So what could be more dangerous than sin? What is more dangerous than sin is your blindness to sin. Your denial of sin. Right? Sorry. Go backwards. Yep. More dangerous than sin is your blindness to sin. And for Israel, her spiritual blindness 
is that she didn't acknowledge God, it was God who was blessing her, and so she'll also be spiritually blind that it was God who was punishing her. Be very careful, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you choose deliberately, intentionally or unintentionally to factor God out of your life. When you factor God out of your life or the world squeezes God out of your life because of your busyness or your laziness to think about life, about who He is and who you are, you won't acknowledge Him when He's blessing you. Left, right, centre, centre stage. And you won't acknowledge Him when He is punishing you. That was the blindness. And so when you read the Proverbs, when you read the Psalms, when you read the Old Testament, please know this is not a cry for help from a stranger. This is not a cry for help from a professional. This is a cry for help. And there's a history to this story. There's a relationship to this story. It's a cry for help to a God who made a promise to love them. But the same God, there are two sides to this God. Let me ask you, which side of God do you like? It's a no-brainer, right? We like the blessing side of God. And so one commentator of this, he called this psalm the smile and the frown of God. When God smiles on you, it's blessing, blessing, unlimited. The benevolence of God, the blessings of God, the bountifulness of God, your life just blossoms when His hand is upon you. When that smile, so I'm trying to dramatize this, I'm trying to smile, right? When that smile of God turns into a frown, Am I succeeding? Yeah, not, not very good. Okay. Then you face the terror and the horror of curses, curses all around you. That's God. And that was his relationship with Israel. So we don't like this side of God. Let me ask you at this point, who should be asking who questions? Which side of you does God like? Which side of you should He not like? Instead of turning it around, just in case you put God in the dock, as in a court, you put Him under cross-examination. Be very careful, right? C.S. Lewis wrote a book, God in the Dock, is worth reading. But the tables will be turned, actually, he is the one who will cross-examine me and you. So I ask again on God's behalf before we move on to the next portion of this psalm, which part of God do you like? Which part don't you like? We like the blessings, we don't like the curses. He's the same God with two sides to him. Same covenant love. Ask the flip side question, which side of God does, which side of you does God embrace? And which side of you does God not embrace, reject, and hate. It's the sinful side, the rebellious side, the proud side, the autonomous side, the prosper and forget God side of you and me. And to have abundance, to have everything, but thank Him for nothing. Are you there already? Have you normalized that? So which is more dangerous spiritually? Prosperity or poverty? Think carefully, yeah? Which is more dangerous spiritually in your walk with God? It would seem like from Israel's story that prosperity is slightly more dangerous than poverty. 
So spiritual blindness. And then he goes on from this point onwards. And what's this now? He now moves on. And now moves on to say what? Verse 4. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's, with your people's prayer? You have fed them with the bread of tears, given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbours and our enemies laugh at us. And now, he's got something to sort out, his crisis of faith. You're angry with us. Obviously, our prayers are not pleasing to you. And our prayers must reflect our spiritual condition. And for Israel, she had become masters of what? Turning up in the temple, being nominal, being superficial, two-timing with God, and thinking twice, not thinking twice about it at all. And now he contemplates, will your anger overtake your compassion? And so many of us have worries. So what do you worry about? Okay, we're going to go read the list here. Your worries about your jobs. Anybody worry about jobs? Yes, most of us. Worry about money? Anybody worry about money? All hands up. Um, worry about security? Worry about your children? Worry about your own health? Worry about your elderly parents? But this is the most fearful worry. That God could be angry with you and God's anger with you, against you and me, could be permanent. And God's withdrawal of blessing from you could be permanent. The withdrawal of God from your life should be the most frightening thing for you. The loss of God, His presence, His purposes for you should scare the daylights out of us not the loss of anything else or anyone else. And so he contemplates, he contemplates, O Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them the bread of tears. Our main diet is just sorrow, 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 unending sorrow. What's he contemplating? The historical context is hard to pin down, but a good number of scholars think that it's now come to pass that the northern nation of Israel, ten tribes, have fallen to Assyria. The southern nation is made up of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, the lineage from Jacob through Rachel. And Benjamin is the tribe geographically between the north and the south. They should have been one united nation of twelve tribes. But because of David's sin in their life, Right? The nation split into two. Ten in the north, two in the south. And in all likelihood, the north has fallen to Assyria. That would be between 734 to 722. And tribe after tribe fell. Now they contemplate the reality that if the Assyrians are unstoppable, they might march into Judah, made up of these two tribes, with Benjamin as the buffer. Right? So have you ever lived with a threat? So you think Putin will go beyond Ukraine? You think he will go beyond Ukraine? Don't know. That's what they asked when Hitler first invaded Poland in World War II. You think the Japanese will stop at Manchuria? That's what they asked when the Japanese landed in Manchuria. And then they came down Thailand, then they came down Malaya, then they came down Singapore. All our guns were pointed in the wrong direction. We lived through communist insurgency in the 1960s. In the communist insurgency of the 1960s, they were falling that dominoes because China and Russia were mainly communists. It was an ideological battle between China, Russia, and the states. 
Democracy on one hand, communism and socialism on the other hand. Those who have lived through that. And those whole of Southeast Asia was panicking. If they knock down Vietnam, then they'll knock down the next thing, then they'll come down Thailand, they'll come down Malaysia, they'll come down Singapore. And it was our Prime Minister, our founding Prime Minister, who went to America and said, we've got to stop this. Can you help us stop this? Because the whole of Southeast Asia will become communist. The fear and the panic that was there in the 60s. Ask your grandparents. I don't need to ask my grandparents because we, my parents lived through it. The 60s, the 50s. And so this psalm is written. Go before us, O God. Stand against them. But now he contemplates, he contemplates that they have fallen. You have made us, brought sorrow into our life and shame into our life. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Then thirdly, he now a call to remember. Hey, as I remember our story, our love story, O God, with you, you did this. So the infancy of the love story, you brought a vine out of Egypt. So they were slaves for 400 years in Egypt, right? Just a bunch of slaves in Egypt. And then you brought a vine out of Egypt. And as you brought this vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations. The nations had to be driven out. And the nations was full of, the nations were full of Canaanites and idol worshippers. Now think about that logic. God had to drive out idol worshippers before he planted Israel in the promised land in Canaan for the true worship of God. The story of the Bible is the replacement, the smashing of idolatry and the replacement of idolatry with the true worship of the true living and the loving God. And it was God who brought you out of Egypt, drove out the nations, planted you there. He cleared the ground. Anybody who was gardeners, COVID gardeners, you clear the ground, right? It took deep root. It filled the land. The mountains were covered with shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, its roots to the river, and you are lost. Because the language is so figurative, so distant from us. You know what he's saying? So we just came back from preaching in Perth and then to a smaller town, and we drove. It was a long distance. We had to drive 700, 800 kilometers that, you know, in total took eight, nine hours non-stop. I didn't even stop for lunch to go from one conference to the other. And then <laughs> along the way, it's beautiful scenery, lovely scenery. And Mona ever so often, hey, hey, sheep, 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 sheep. Click, 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 click. How many, how many? Oh, looks like hundreds. Hey, this one looks like thousands, thousands. <laughs> sheep, looks so beautiful, right? The white wool and all that. It's just so beautiful. And just flat countryside, the mountains, the sky is just beautiful. How many sheep did they bring from England? To Australia 200 years ago. How many sheep did they bring to New Zealand? You ever been to New Zealand? There are more sheep than people in New Zealand. Do you know that? They probably bought two, four, six, and now it's in the millions. Can you imagine that? The wheat that came from the motherland, England, Ireland, they brought a few strands, they planted it, and now it's zillions of acres. That's the picture he wants to plant. He wants to paint for you. A single vine came out of Egypt. Right? Totally vulnerable. God cleared the ground, planted it, rooted, it blossomed, it grew. And now he's moving from, in terms of the history books of the Bible, he moves from Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, where they conquered the land. Then it grows. 
under King David and King Solomon and the empires, it reached its maximum boundaries. It reached its ideal boundaries. So I ask you, Singaporeans, what's the ideal boundary of Singapore? We keep filling in the land, right? right? Reclaiming land. The ideal boundary is fill it up, fill it up, so finally join up with Batam Bintan. Is that right? Some Singaporeans were joking that one day maybe we'll just float ourselves, float ourselves and just park ourselves near Perth, near, near Western Australia. Right? If only we could float ourselves to a different neighbourhood. What's the ideal boundaries? The ideal boundaries stretch to the Red Sea and the River Euphrates. You have to find it on a map. And those were golden age under King David and King Solomon. Then all of a sudden, there's a turn and twist. Come with me. And what's the turn and twist? Verse 12. When have, why have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. So all, when, God's hand is on, when God's hand was on Israel, the borders and boundaries stretched to the limit. They grew in prosperity. They grew geographically. Then all of a sudden, when God's hand lifts from Israel, right, they are the will and fancy of men. Previously, when God's hand was upon them, no one could touch them. They were invincible. They were impregnable. But when God lifts His hand and broke down their walls, anyone can do anything and any time to them. That's what the Russians are doing in Kherson. That's what the Russians are doing in many parts of Ukraine. They are finding that rape is a, is a method of warfare. That's not new. You just have to read history to understand that's how it is. That's how it was. And so, from no one could touch Israel to anyone could do anything to it. But notice that the psalmist says, you broke down this wall. He recognises Deuteronomy, I think, that this is not just man's malevolence or evil against fellow men. This is not the rise just of Assyria and Babylon. This is actually, this is actually under your sovereignty, O God. And then in the final portion from verse 14, come with me in the Bibles. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven. He began with, hear, O God. Now he says, look down and see. And look down and see what? He wants God to look down from heaven. When God looks down from heaven, have you ever looked out of the plane? You look out of the plane, it's just beautiful clouds. You look at the country, they're the landing, say, hey, hey, the mountains there, the rivers there, it's just beautiful. When God looks down, of all the things he can look down with his divine eyes, the psalmist says to God, look down, and just look at the vine. From this point onwards is the imagery of the vine. And the imagery of the vine becomes a very big description as much as shepherd and sheep, vineyard owner to vine, the tenants. And what does he say about this vine? Have regard for this wine, vine. Consider it. Don't forget it. The stock that, the stock that your right hand planted for the sun whom you have made strong for yourself. And the word translated sun can equally be translated brunch. They have burned with fire. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. 
but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man who you made strong for yourself. And so what does he mean by that? Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man. Son of man was used of Jesus. But when you look back, when this was written, perhaps it was not so much about the Messiah. Son of man was another name for Israel. And so don't forget Israel. Continue to work on him. This vine that you took out of Egypt, work on him. Then we shall turn back. We shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we'll call upon your name. Verse 18. Then we shall not turn back from you. The Hebrew meaning of the word there carries the meaning of apostasy. You know what apostasy is? It's like a big word. They're turning away from the true and living God to go and follow idols. Will there come a day in our walk in our relationship with you, O God, that we'll never turn away from you again? Can this be turning back to you and turning back to you forever? Can this be permanent repentance? That's probably on view. And don't you hate it when you say to God, I repent. I repent of my anger. I repent of my discontentment. I repent of my insecurity. I repent of my unforgiveness. I repent of my lust. I repent. And then three days later, it happens. You hope and pray and wish and work for the day in which you never want to turn away from God. Is that right? Because after a while, you get tired of your own fickleness. After a while, you get tired of your own capriciousness. You know what? That means you're not steady. You and I are not steady in our promises. So when a couple gets married, right, and they make those vows, a very important thing we remind them to make those vows huh, is, by the grace of God, right? By the grace of God, I will keep these vows. You will never keep these vows by your own strength. Is that right? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Already for louder, for softer in terms of snoring, you might want a divorce, let alone anything. If you ever make vows, you know it's God's grace that enables you to keep those vows. And so, then we shall turn, not turn from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Finally, the third time, restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. He reaches a crescendo. He's so confident that God will do this. That rebellion and sin and curses will not be the last word in their life. I want to ask you, how confident are you of that? That your sin will not be the last word in your life. That the repercussions of your sin will not be the last and lasting word of your life. But God and His restoration of you, His face turned towards you in love, in tenderness, His saving of you, will be the last word and the lasting forever word in your life. That's amazing, right? The one who speaks about this vine the most is Jesus. And that was the responsive reading that you read, just one passage. And he tells a parable to the teachers that are there. And that parable comes from Isaiah chapter 5. Go and read Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1 to 7. God is a vineyard owner. He planted a vineyard and he made Israel the tenants. But Israel forgot. She thought she was the owner and forgot God. So God sent prophet after prophet, servant after servant who was the prophet. And for each prophet, each servant that God sent, they either beat or kill. Only two destinies 
for the prophet. So be very careful you want to be a prophet. They either beat you or kill you. Finally, God sent his son and they got together and said, we'll kill him, the son, and when we kill him, we'll get the inheritance. They switched from stewardship, tenancy, to ownership. Be very careful, my friends. You are the owner of nothing. You're the steward of everything. Is that true? Some things may be in your name. I want to ask you, is your life leasehold or freehold? Just a reality check. Is your life leasehold or freehold? If you say freehold, I'm here free for counselling after this. It so happens to be, I don't know, 80 years on average in Singapore. So yes, by all means buy a freehold property. But by all means, remember, are your children leasehold or freehold? Are your children leasehold or freehold? The last time you checked, leasehold. Lah. Some of them want to leave your home as far as possible. So why all this security in freehold? And anyway, freehold, after 30, 40 years, Singapore has, an, has a way of knocking them all down and starting all over again. This on block thing is a Singaporean phenomenon. So this whole freehold thing about life may get us into the ownership framework of things. You're the owner of nothing. So, you know, I do this very often, right, when I preach. What have I just done? I've just taken two breaths so that you can see me heaving here. You know, that breath is borrowed from God. If he decides to snuff me out, I collapse here and die. Sure, the hospitals can put you on a breathing machine, but after a while they'll say, it's too expensive, we're going to cut it off. That doesn't keep you alive. That doesn't give you lifestyle. That just gives you a few more breaths for a few more months. You are here as a steward. You are not here as an owner. And as a steward, one day you have to give accountability for your life. There is no such thing as free will and autonomy. One day you have to give account of how you came, how you live, and who you believe in. Restore us, O oh God. So finally, it comes to this. Did you notice the repetition of the three of them? Restore us, O oh God. So who must make the first move? for this reconciled relationship, for this broken relationship to be restored. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us. Save us and we will be saved. It must be God. Unless God relents, unless God moves towards you no longer in anger, but now in forgiveness, and God cannot forgive without lowering His standards of holiness. And finally, God fully restores you, fully shines His face upon you, and fully saves you through the vine, Jesus. In John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And so it's very important that we get this right, because in a lot of man-made philosophy, in a lot of man-made religion, after a while, you say, I sin, 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 I cannot get out of pornography, I cannot get out of gambling, I cannot get out of chasing skirts, I cannot get out of just being greedy with wealth, I cannot get out of this. But now I've learned my lesson, you, something has happened, you pull the rug, I come back to you. Your personal repentance is not the starting point to get back to God. Unless God relents, you can repent all you want, you still don't qualify to meet His holiness. That's the danger of man-made religion that Canaan had 
with all her gods. You think that after a while, you just do enough of good things to cancel the bad things, enough of virtues to cancel the vices, and boom, you pop into heaven, or at least get blessed in life. The God of the Bible, the true, the living, and the only God, is unless I relent, you have no basis to repent. Restore us, O God. Make your face to shine upon us and save us, O God, from Satan, sin, and death. For that is your ultimate enemies in life. Is that true? Absolutely true. No one can deal with their own sin. You may try to hide it, but you'll never cancel it. No one can ever prevent death. You can only delay it or prolong life. All of us will die unless Jesus returns earlier and we who believe in him are taken to new life. And so this is how God turns to us in blessing, in Jesus. And Jesus says to me, says to us, he's the true vine. So how did Israel get taken into two exiles, Assyrian and Babylon, 722, 587? Because for them, the faith that God gave them that they practiced in the temple of Jerusalem, in their synagogues, had become a series of repetitions. Ritual, routine. Go through the rituals without relationship. Go through the motions without the meaning. Never get used to going through the rituals, routine, without the relationship. They started to replace God, but never thought twice about it. So God zapped them and took them into exile. Is that true? Absolutely true. And so, be mindful. Be mindful of this. Be prayerful. Be humble before God. So, by God's grace, I went to preach it in, in Perth. And after you know, sermons, people will come and pray, ask for prayer and help and guidance. And that's part of our work. And this man lined up for a while, and then he came up to say, I, I, I'm from Middle East. Middle East. Uh, I, I, I practice my religion a lot in my country, but no, 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 no freedom, no no peace in my heart, then I come to Australia. Come to Australia, then I hear gospel, I hear about Jesus. First time in my life, I, I give to Jesus, and Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is the true God. He's the true God. I write back to my family. I write back to my family. I tell my brother I believe in Jesus. My brother said to me, if you ever come back to Saudi Arabia, I will cut off your legs. Then a few, not too long after that, he got he, he got the information that his brother, right? I didn't accident or sickness, I forget. His own leg had to be amputated. He said, I don't rejoice in that. But I believe in Jesus no matter what. And now he's doing broadcasting to share this message. He's so overwhelmed. His help, as he's experienced, is not the help, the spontaneous help of a stranger. His help that he experienced is not the paid help of a professional. The help that he received, we could use that word, is the salvation promised by God, the love of Jesus in Christ Jesus. The love of God in Christ Jesus at the cross, the resurrection. The man has found his freedom. He's so joyful, he's brimming with, with joy. And he says to me, can I kiss you? Mediterranean culture. I look around at Mona. So I say, yes. Greet each other with a holy kiss. That's Mediterranean culture. 
He's just brimming with joy because he had enough of the repetition of ritual in his former practice that never got him right with God. He knew that he could never get right with God. And so that's the beauty of this. Jesus, the true vine. And there's a danger for us. The danger is, are you any different, for want of a better word, pre-COVID, post-COVID, we kept asking, what will life be post-COVID? What's the new normal? What's the new normal? All I can say to you is that whatever God ordains into your life and my life, personally, nationally, and globally, and through this pandemic, my simple, hopefully not simplistic theology is purify the church, wants the world. Purify the church, wants the world. So in simple language, you do not know what that means. Has God started to purify your life, detox you of idols, detox you of fears, detox you of the things that you love, that are harmful to you in the end, that you give your life and your love and your loyalty to, the idols of your own making? So post the, the new normal, post-pandemic, I can only pray for myself and for all of us and those tuning in that you give your life to Jesus, surrender more and more, indeed your whole life to Jesus, and I can pray for myself and pray for you, that you become a better version of yourself than pre-COVID. There I pray for you, right? The ACS pledge, the best is yet to be, that post-COVID, you'll be the best version of yourself by grace, not by law, not by merits, as you live by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? If you, if you were as prayerless, if you were prayerless because you were so busy pre-COVID, are you just as prayerless post-COVID? If you hardly read your Bible, are you going to be like that? That your life is normal even though you live with your Bible shut? Is there an increasing diet or need for God's Word? If you hardly spend time with God in what we call personal devotion and quiet times, are you now desiring Him more and more? That's very important to ask, don't you think? To go in and out of a global crisis, a pandemic, and, no, and come out of it no different will be a very sorry state, spiritually, relationally, mentally, and in every way. Don't you think so? So one of the great things that we are pushing here, 377A will be repealed. Marriage will be constituted. Right? And thank God the government has protected family values across the board. But it's not the role and prerogative of the government, of the Prime Minister and the Cabinet to protect my marriage and protect my family, you know? Because push comes to shove, if my marriage goes into trouble, the, the, God will not ask the Cabinet, hey, how come Christian's marriage is in trouble? He will come and ask Christian and Mona, is that right? Have I got my theology correct? That means we must play the true game and the long game. The true game and the long game is that we must strengthen marriages and families. And you don't strengthen marriages and families by fluke. You've got to be intentional with God that day by day, my quiet time with you, my devotional time personally, and day by day regularly, my family devotion with you should be a non-negotiable. So we pass the gospel on to a man like from another country and he hears the gospel, and the ritual of his life is totally overturned for a relationship with Jesus. We also have to pass the gospel not just onwards to others, but downwards to our children. I highly commend that to you, 
So we got Keith and Christine Getty to come. For what? For a one-night concert only? No, they had two, two workshops here. And that was to promote singing in families, the family that reads together, meditates on God's words together, surrenders to God, prays to God, sings to God together. The strength of the church is built on the strength of the individuals. Is that true? If you're strong with God, if your family is strong with God, if your marriage and families are strong with God, then the church of Jesus Christ will be strong. This is our golden opportunity to do it. This is the high calling of God to do it. And we can pass on the gospel to our children no matter what age. So by God's grace, we've got two grandchildren. One is 18 months, the other is two, just past two months. <laughs> you know, we say grace, we sing songs, etc. And before every meal, um, yeah, Eden, our granddaughter, will say grace. And sometimes in our haze and our hunger, a few times Mona has started eating and she said, and the grandmother filled with guilt. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's good, right? That granddaughter can correct grandma and grandpa. You didn't pray. And where does it come from? It's just these things that you pass on to your children. They can be gospel from young. Play Christian music from morning to night. Teach them to pray. Teach them to remember. Let them sing. Let them sing God's word. When they're in trouble, they will remember these words. And the words of scripture will carry them through. Amen? That's what we are on about. And so God was meticulous in blessing Israel. A single vine, clearing the ground, rooting them, blossoming them, all the details, securing them with walls. Then his, the details in breaking them down and cursing. God of the macro picture, God of the details. You believe that? Nothing ever happens by chance. You are here not by routine or ritual. And so I just did two days of marriage retreat together at Mona for another church. And so there were 36 couples there, 36 couples. And this is strengthening marriages all along the way. And that's very important. So we sit there in the middle. One couple comes to sit with us. Then there's another two seats there. So I saw a couple getting their food, buffet. I signaled to them, mm, come, come, come sit with us. They're another church, so we don't know them. They sat with us, got to know them a little bit more, shared a story, going through a very tough time. And then next morning, breakfast, woke up, right? It was filled up. We arrived slightly late for, for that breakfast. And there were two empty seats. Now the couple were sitting there and they signaled to us to sit down. You know what it says to me at the end of it? All that is ordained by God. Of all the people you wave to, you know, I don't sit around now, just like a madman waving to people, come and sit with me, you know. I'm not like that. Of all people, I, I don't know, I just come sit with me. Of all those places that were available in the morning breakfast that was filled up, was their two spaces. They were going through a tough time. And it was their assurance to them that in sitting with us and meeting with us, that no matter how tough, how broken they were at this moment, God was still in love with them. That is the God who loves you, a God of detail. He's out to save you. So you may sit here and be experiencing pain and brokenness and lostness as you look into the future. But I want to assure you, God's face is turned to you in Christ Jesus. His favour is upon you. Call upon the Lord Jesus and you are on the right side of God. Amen? In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion. The Lord's Supper, Holy Communion is a sacrament, a public reminder of this is God's sacrificial love to restore us, 
turn his face to shine upon us and to save us fully and finally. Let's stand.